0: Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So, a busy show ahead of us tonight. Let's say hello to Eniny Richard Collins, and Niall Hatch. Hello, everybody. You all there? Yes?
1: yeah we're all there is right some of us are all there i'm here as well derek yes you i'm are, okay. on show,
2: as we used to say at school <laughs> yeah. all those years ago
0: it's a long time since we've had to say on show. anyway let's start with you richard all changed changed utterly has a terrible beauty been born richard it's a strange time derek a very
2: strange time i heard a great hit in full song today in a housing estate, walking through a housing estate in Port Marek. A great hit in full song. That is extraordinary. Now, the other strange thing, There are very few brent geese in Malahide. A pair showed up uh, in early September, two adults, and another little family showed up, little I say, because there was a mother and four babies, Mm -hmm. but no father. Now that is very strange. That pair were capable of raising four young. Now most brent geese get two or three off, some get four five are even known but to get four through you have to be a pretty good parent but where is the other parent? Did it get killed on the way or what has happened? That is very interesting. My cotoniaster is getting eaten out already which is very strange because the thrushes don't move onto the cotoneaster until the ground gets hard and they can't get the leather jackets and worms and things that they normally get. It's a very very strange time the centre cannot hold mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Things are changing. It is a bit scary, but it's also oh very goodness. exciting.
0: Niall, what have you got to say about all that?
3: Well, it, it is certainly scary uh, and I would certainly share those sentiments. We are seeing natural cycles going out of kilter. Um, you mentioned there Richard about the, the Brent geese and uh, they do seem to be, to be late. I haven't seen any Brent geese myself yet down here in, in County Wicklow. They should be here by now. Hopefully they're on their way. Uh, but I'm also hoping that avian flu hasn't affected them. That's a big fear. Uh, when you get to Uh, such a vulnerable species like that concentrate in very few areas bird flu can play a role and and could be quite problematic for them as as the winter progresses
2: i can hear brent in the bed in the morning normally at this time of year their little sort of gurgling kind of barking sound and it's a beautiful sound and they're down 50 meters from where i live normally there isn't one here this year and that is
0: very strange and now it's officially winter it's november and Nile, you mentioned avian flu and this is the day when poultry farmers are told to keep their birds indoors. That's right,
3: and the Department of Agriculture has issued a, a regulation requiring poultry to be kept indoors, and that's not just for farmers, it's for people who have poultry, maybe a chicken or two in their back gardens, it applies to them as well, and that's a, to try and limit the effects of avian influenza on domestic poultry. Uh, We've we got the, the, the bad news there the week before last that um, a mute swan had been found dead in County Cavan, so well, well inland, obviously, uh, and it had died of avian flu, so the disease has spread clearly from beyond the seabirds around the coast is now moving to other parts of the country which is, which is a great worry and it's been a very busy couple of weeks for us in, in Birdwatch Ireland um, trying to keep on top of this story and, and to try and, and spread the word we obviously uh, in Birdwatch Ireland our, our main concern and remit would be the wild birds and we are very concerned as I was saying there about the brent geese and the other wintering water birds coming into Ireland they could be hit very badly by this it's kind of difficult to predict exactly how it'll pan out but it's certainly a worrying time
0: Mm, certainly is Nile. And if you want to find out more about avian influenza, please visit the website rte.ie. Forward slash Mooney. Now, let me take you back to last week, right here in RT Radio One. We celebrated Nature Nights every evening from ten to eleven PM. It was fantastic—a myriad of programs for your delectation. One of which was a discussion about the importance of dark skies, not just for wildlife but for us humans too. Richard Collins spoke to the founder of an organization called Visit Dark Skies. Etta Danneman and she explained how the Dark Skies movement came about. So in the past, there have been many places where you could actually see the whole amount of stars without light pollution. But in the last century, there has been an enormous increase in artificial lighting. So there's a movement called Dark Sky Movement, and the aim is to protect the places where you can actually see the whole amount of stars or see the natural night sky. So International Dark Sky Places is a program of the International Dark Sky Association, which is one of three certification organizations that try to create programs that help nature parks to protect their night skies. One of those dark sky parks happens to be in County Mayo. And I believe, Ana, you spent the weekend there at the Mayo Dark Skies Festival. You were one of the speakers.
1: But I was I was speaking to the good and the great about the impact of darkness on marine creatures under the sea. Mm-hmm. And that was an actual very interesting thing. There were a couple of talks about marine environments and one thing and another. So my one tied in very well. And I was pointing out that, you know, under the sea the light attenuates very quickly. You only get light down for oh I don't know, the red colour is gone very quickly. The first the first thirty feet and your red colour is gone. And by the time you get down another bit down to maybe 30, 40 metres there's only the pale blue light so that's all that's reflected every your other colour is gone your red diving jacket is gone it doesn't look red anymore and then of course as it gets dark then it gets dark much quicker because all the lights are skimming over the sea rather than going down into it and I was explaining then when it's dark under the sea and um, obviously the plants aren't up to much but there's, there's these animals that come out at night because I used to do night dive and mm-hmm, go and watch. You're them. very brave. And well, I was very brave because it's not what you see that you're afraid of, it's what you don't, don't see. And you see very little. You have your torch. And all you can see is what's the light of your torch. So what's beside you? What's behind you? What's creeping up at the back? Who knows? But the things that would be in, in, in rocks during the day, in holes in the rocks, things like lobsters and crabs were marching over the seabed at a great rate. And you could see these quite well. They're the hunters and they were out looking for stuff and they were out of, their, out of their actual holes that they would be in when you would be on a day dive and you could see them marching about underneath. They obviously felt empowered at night to go out and hunt for food and I mean this is what they were at. But there was also things like fan worms. Now a fan worm is the most beautiful thing, it's like a flower on a stalk but the stalk is actually the, the, the case and because it's dark or not they, they have to filter but it's dark so they can come out of their fan and wave their tentacles around and filter in the lovely food for themselves and it's the the actual movement of the water that causes them to vanish. So if we swam over them they went whoosh and they all went down to talks again. So this was all very interesting. And then of course there were the light bearing creatures. Two thirds of the of the animals that live in the eternal darkness, two thirds of them have lucifer and have their own cold lights that they have. Some of that is to attract prey, some of it is to attract lovers, some of it is to see where they're going and some of it is just for the hell of it waving waving their colours and this was all uh, all different things that happened under the water because of darkness it was a an evolutionary thing it was a diurnal behaviour it went down very well I have to say my audience were delighted with my comments on these matters.
2: Yes, um, that's very interesting. Light is so important. I believe there are animals in the world that track the Milky Way of all things. For navigation, that is. In migration and navigation, for instance, there are creatures, insects and mammals, who use the light of the Milky Way to orientate themselves when they are migrating. Now, the Milky Way, I haven't seen it in this part. I've seen it in the Dark Sky area that you're talking about about there Anna but I haven't seen it in Dublin in a very long time indeed and if you go to the southern hemisphere as a wonderful Milky Way if you're out in a in a dark place it's it's absolutely marvelous so I can understand why things would track it the other element in this is polarized light mm-hmm. Certain creatures can uh, track polarised light. So all that is being t- upset now by our lights, which are cl- lighting up the sky and blotting it all out. Uh, so it's extraordinary. But I wonder what is happening to uh, the whole ecosystem, the entire animal kingdom,
0: with and the land kingdom, with this sort of thing going on. Oh my God, Richard, you're scaring me, you're scaring me. Let's lighten the mood again now. Have you ever watched one of the BBC's groundbreaking wildlife documentaries and thought, how do they get that extraordinary shot? Well, there's a good chance it was captured by our next guest. Doug Allen is one of the world's most distinguished wildlife cameramen and a friend of Mooney Goes Wild. You will know his work from the Blue Planet, Frozen Earth, Frozen Planet and others. In this clip, Doug is describing an intimate encounter with a humpback whale.
4: Humpback whales just look... Utterly amazing when you get close to them. They've got all these bumps over their head. You swim in, and that eye just comes straight in on you. You establish an utterly personal one-to-one contact with them through their eye. And as you hang at the surface or swim down to them, they will come up and meet you. They'll come up and meet you. They're full of curiosity. They're full of friendliness.
0: I'll bet they are. Doug Allen has been filming the polar regions since the 1970s and is a valuable witness on the impact of climate change there. He brings this insight along with his successes and setbacks during 35 years of natural history filmmaking on David Attenborough's landmark series on tour around Ireland in the coming weeks. And he joins us now for a chat. Hello, Doug.
4: How are you? So you're back in Ireland. (laughs) I am. So,
0: what can people expect to see on your theatre tour?
4: <laughs> well, you know those little 10 minutes at the end, which everyone says is their favourite bit of the programme. Well, imagine an extended version of that for a couple of hours. Um, so, I'll be talking about some of my adventures that I've had recently, some of the things that are new things that I've learned, some of the new expeditions that I've been on. And then I'll be winding in, uh, of course, issues about climate change, which unfortunately is something that, that seems to be looming ever larger in our lives.
0: Yes, indeed, and that's something we'll come back to shortly. But I want to talk to you about your encounters with large animals. You mentioned there diving with humpback whales. Where do you feel safest? Or where is it safest, should I say, on land or at sea? Because Aina was talking about diving at night time to the Mayo Dark Skies Festival attendees and the wonderful encounters she's had. But she says the things that make you nervous are the things you can't see because it's dark so when it comes to big animals where do you feel safest at sea or on land
4: (laughs) (laughs) it's rather like i mean if a whale leans against you underwater then you just get pushed sideways in the water but if an elephant (laughs) tends to wander across and if you're not careful maybe it puts its foot on top of yours then that's a bit more of a difficult situation (laughs)
0: That's an extraordinary description If a whale leans against you in the water You just get pushed in the water Has that actually happened to you?
4: Oh yeah, I've had, um, I've had whales. In fact, my, my very first encounter with a whale was remarkable. It was with a right whale down in Argentina. And this, I'd been filming this whale on the surface and I went down under water because I wanted to kneel on the bottom and look up and get a silhouette. But this female came down and she just swam straight up to me and literally stopped. She was floating about half a metre above the bottom. And um, her eye was level with mine and I just looked her in the eye and I, there was a slight swell moving back and forward. And I could feel myself just being slowly pushed against the wheel. So I put my hand up very gently just so that, you know, I wouldn't get pushed against the wheel. And when she, when, when I touched her, you could feel the change in muscle tone, just like, you know, you touch a sleeping person. You could feel a little imperceptible stiffening, but it didn't seem to bother her. And I don't know why, but I started gently rubbing her side And um, as I did this, she began to push against me, almost like the way a dog lifts its head when it wants you to scratch it a bit more harder in between its ears. It was like this whale was pushing against my hand, wanting me to give it a good old massage round about the the, the sort of rear part of its head. So I obliged and... um, Eventually, it was it was pushing me sideways across the bottom as I was as I was rubbing its head. Um, that was a remarkable, remarkably friendly and intimate counter with a right whale.
0: And did you at any stage feel nervous or afraid for your life?
4: Really, they're huge creatures. Oh, big animal. I mean, this thing was, you know, 50, 60 tonnes probably. But no, not at all. You know, whales know exactly where you are in the water. You know, I, I've been, I've had a whale swim by me very close, a humpback, with, which have these very long fins, our flippers, and I, I was filming and I could see out of the corner of my eye, I could see the big, long pectoral fin, hanging down in the water, coming towards me. But when it was about a metre away, it just lifted its fin just enough to lift it over my head and put it down over the other side and carry on as it swam past me. So I knew absolutely where I was in the water and it knew absolutely how to avoid touching me.
0: Whales are mammals like ourselves, Doug. They're known for being, if you want to put it in human terms, kind and considerate and caring. And they look out for one another and indeed look out for humans. But have you ever filmed with sharks? And I'm thinking of the Great White in particular.
4: I have filmed Great White sharks. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't filmed them doing very much. I mean, they, you know, they're quite difficult <laughs> when, they're, when they're actually hunting. And it's probably. A situation where you definitely wouldn't want to get in the water, but I filmed great whites from a from a cage, and of course I've filmed the the friendly, the, you know, the plankton-eating forms of sharks. You know, the great white shark might be the biggest predator animal in the sea, but. Whale sharks and, and basking sharks, for example, you know, they're feeding on plankton and they're part of the same group as as, um, as great white sharks. So I've been in the water with a wide range of sharks um, all the way through. And again, I don't think, well... The great white sharks do attack people. So do tiger sharks. So do bull sharks. Um, and quite often, however, it's sort of you know because they're slightly confused about their about the prey. They they see the human being as a prey item, and these animals normally prey on other things besides humans. So quite often, in the case of an attack, it's where the where the shark has thought that the human is actually possibly a seal or something like that, which is its more normal prey. But, um, you know, as with any big animal, you have to be careful, especially in the water. Those animals are in their element and they're designed, they've evolved to move much, much faster than you can in the water. You know, it definitely pays to give them some respect and to recognise the change in mood when particularly the whales, which being mammals, you know, they have personalities and some of them might be qu- quite happy for you to be around them for an hour a couple of hours, and then just like any human, they'll just want a bit of their personal space back, and so they might show that by turning their tail sideways onto you and then swishing their tail from left to right, rather than up and down, and that left to right movement that's a sort of indication that that's what they do between themselves when there's when a of aggro going on and so you recognise that sign and you think that's fine, I've had a good couple of hours with you, I'll just back off and leave you in peace till the next encounter.
2: Well now that is extraordinary I must say. So you have to learn in a sense to be a cameraman at your level. You have to learn the language of something like sharks if you're going to film sharks. You've got to know what the various movements are. It's not obvious that a shark is a cross or annoyed or something like that unless you're able to interpret its body language. Is that the case? Do you learn this? Do you read it up in advance or what?
4: You do both. Um, there's a lot of um, studies being done on behaviour. Um, you know, the change in behaviour from, from a shark which is merely curious and swimming around to a shark which is perhaps defending its territory, um, to a shark which is going to be preparing to attack you. But normally, if, if an animal wants to attack you in order to eat you, uh, to damage you. Therefore, it usually it relies upon surprise, the element of surprise. So if you see the animal and you let the animal know that it's been seen, then it will normally not press home its attack. But it will press home its attack if, for example, you stay persistently in its territory. Um, and, you know, and even great white sharks have uh, underwater territories, you know, underwater personal spaces, put it that way. And if you persistently try to push yourself into that personal space, then you get the slightly head down, the flippers get pointed downwards, you know, rather than out at the sides. And those are the sort of indications that if you push that shark, he or she will press home and attack on you. And again, if, you're, if, you, you, know, if you know the shark sufficiently, then you can recognise that behaviour and possibly get out of the road. And it's the same with whales. You know, as I say, whales will... Wheels can be friendly for a while and then they get bored or they just want to be left in, in peace and, and they, they they show their behaviour in subtle ways. Polar bears are the same. You can tell the difference. A polar bear that's coming at you with its head down and swaying from side to side and blowing through its nose, making a kind of huffing, puffing noise, that's a bear to beware of because that bear is coming in in a threatening mood, whereas a bear that walks in more gently, head up, looking from side to side, it's probably just curious and it may be that you still want to keep away from that bear or you know, fire off a couple of cracker shells to keep the bear at a distance. You know, It's a very different feeling that you get from the bear that is coming in and you're going to have to definitely do some serious deterrent towards it. Either get on your snow machine and drive away or give it some cracker shells from further away. So you learn these little, dif- these little differences. And what you want most of the time, what we're looking for, is natural behaviour from an unstressed animal. So therefore we want the bear to be just kind of accepting of our presence and just getting on with whatever behaviour it, it happens to be doing or whatever behaviour we want it to be doing we don't want it too curious, if it's too curious in us, in us then you know it's not really natural behaviour that we want to film and if on the other hand we go in giving off the wrong signals then that animal will just be unhappy and it will either run away, walk away, or in the case of a, t- a whale, a couple of swishes of its tail and it's well out of distance. So it is all about reading the behaviour of the animal, getting the animal to relax in the company and giving it time. And then recognising when you've, when you've had enough that the animal wants to give you for a day and it's maybe time to you know to leave it alone.
2: Is there a tension in the animal in those kinds of situation? If you are offering food to lure an animal towards you or your camera or something like that, the animal now has a problem. It wants the food, but it's also fearful. There's two forces going on. Should I go in and eat this juicy morsel, or is it too dangerous? Or should I back off? And that sh- seems to me a dangerous kind of predicament. The animal is trying to j- Juggle with these two forces, and that seems to me likely a time when it would attack. Is that a problem, or is this nonsense?
4: No, I don't. I mean, it is possible you could do that. I mean, I don't believe in in baiting in animals to get them close. Although that's possible, but in that case, you shouldn't stand so close to the bait that you are in danger of being eaten as well as the bait. If, on the other hand, the animal is coming in because it thinks that you are a potential meal, then that's a whole different scenario in a way. I mean, I would rather have the animal um, coming in on something natural, so to speak, um, not necessarily having put down food for it. I don't think putting down food near humans with an animal... Is a very good idea. For example, with polar bears, it's interesting. We we were up I was up with my fuel assistant Jason and we found a polar bear one day and we were able to, to work with that same polar bear for five days in a row. It kept coming back to the front of this glacier where there was good hunting for the seals. And we could go and wait out at the glacier, and the bear would inevitably turn up, would do the rounds of the seal holes, and then it would go away. And then it was interesting because the first day we saw the bear, there was definitely, we kept our distance from it, etc. but because we saw it on five successive days, each day we became more accustomed to the bear and the bear became more accustomed to us. So that by the end of five days, we definitely, we didn't have a tame bear by any chance, but we had a bear that was more accustomed to us than it had been at the beginning and it was doing more interesting things and we were able to work a little bit closer to it. And at the end, we decided we had run out of time for our shoot and we had to, you know, pack up and head back. And we thought very carefully about it. And what we decided to do was that on the last day, we went out and we found the bear, but we deliberately drove our snow machines you know, towards the bear. We wanted that bear to have its last experience of human beings, for its last experience to be something as humans were to be avoided. Because my fear was that this bear, which we'd been dealing with for five days, if it went and the next humans that it saw, it assumed, oh hey, these guys are okay, it's fine, I'll just walk in on them, then it might well end up being seen as being a threat and end up being shot. Even though it was, wasn't was a threatening bear, everyone on Svalbard goes out with a rifle and they have the you know, in order to defend themselves against bear. And it's not everyone that had the experience that Jason and I had to work with the bear and see what it was doing and all the rest of it. So we just thought, as I say, let's make its last, this bear's last impression of humans as being something to be a little bit careful of, a little bit wary of, so that it doesn't go and approach other humans the same way as it had been willing to come close to us. You
0: mentioned Svalbard there, Doug. Now, just to put it into context for listeners, Svalbard is a Norwegian archipelago in the Arctic Ocean. And there were reports recently of a polar bear pursuing a reindeer into the sea before killing it and dragging it ashore and then eating it. Now, reindeer wouldn't naturally be on the polar bear's diet, would they? Has this got anything to do with climate change? What's going on?
4: Well, it's pretty unnatural. I mean, I don't know, you know, polar bears are great opportunists and, and it might well be that they, you know, one or two bears have learned how to hunt reindeer and have been doing it for a few years in certain areas. Um, but it might be that that behaviour is spreading. I mean, young polar bears spend the first two and a half years of their life with their mother and if that mother has learned a place where it's good to go and hunt r- reindeer and those young bears were there for two summers when it was hunting reindeer, then they too will have learned something about that behavior in that place. And therefore there are you know more pairs in the population now who can who can recognize that. Um, it can't be easy, and, and as I say, it's probably only happens in one or two places where the topography, the geography um, makes it possible for the polar bear to 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 run down the, the, the caribou, what have you. Um but it's interesting. Bears are very what you'd call plastic animals in terms of behavior. You know, they learn a lot and they remember a lot and they can modify their behavior from one time to another. Um, and so you know I wouldn't put anything past the polar bear. But I think the other thing with them um, with YouTube and with the, the quality of research that gets done these days into programmes. Uh, these stories are being found by the researchers, and once the story is found, then, they, then the researchers and the producers are very very good at winkling out all the details and thinking, is it worth putting a camera crew into this location? Um, because possibly we might get it. But um, I don't know if you've been watching Frozen Planet 2, for example, mm-hmm. but there's one sequence in that where there's a, a grizzly bear takes down some muskox calves. And I think, I haven't spoken to the producer, but I think from looking at that, I think that that was completely unexpected. I don't think they were ready for that piece of behaviour. I think it just happened in front of them and they grabbed it. Um, The reason I say that is because it just... It had that feel of a sort of wow, well, look at that! Get some shots of it quick type of sequence, as opposed to if you'd been targeting it, you would have just you know it you would, would have been just ready. been done yep. slightly differently. But uh, that's a case of you know there is still new behaviour being found, and it's just a matter of being there uh, and being a little bit lucky perhaps. But um, you know you get more luck the more prepared you are when you go out there. It could be that the reindeer are being pushed into areas because of climate change. They are going to areas that they didn't used to go to and certainly um, if uh, if the the ice is decreasing in the Arctic that means the polar bears are going on to land sooner than they used to and they're possibly roaming wider and as I say, if if a polar bear is successful one summer, uh, bringing down some, some reindeer, then he or she will remember where that place is and it wouldn't at all surprise me if they went back there the following Year and they build on their successes, and you know that sort of thing could be going on in other parts of the Arctic. It's just that there's no one there to see it.
1: Yes, indeed, Doug. Your successful career as a cameraman must give great hope to people who don't know what they want to be when they grow up. Because you didn't want to be a cameraman when you grew up, you wanted to be a marine biologist, and that was what you trained in. And then you wanted to be a diver. Being a cameraman was only your third choice. And you started off your work as a cameraman in the Antarctic. That was 40 years ago and you've been going to the Antarctic on a regular basis since. So how has it changed in the 40 years from 1981-82 to 2022? Is there a huge reduction in the ice? Is climate change having just as much an effect there as it's having in the Arctic?
4: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the place that I began, that I first wintered on Sydney Island, is um, you know, the, every year they used to take uh, the panoramas of the island in, in February when the sea ice, when the cover, when the snow cover was at a minimum. Uh, Sydney still had a permanent ice cap, and there were seven or eight positions that the panoramas were done every year. And when you compare a panorama that was taken in 76 with one that was taken in 2020, you can just see how much the glaciers have receded um, and how much ice has disappeared. And if climate change continues at its rate, Sydney probably will lose its ice cap in the next, you know, 10, 15 years or so. Um, And then down the peninsula itself, Places that we went to film Life in the Freezer, penguin colonies, and um, Adelies in particular. You know, you go to a penguin colony, there might be twenty-five, thirty thousand penguins there. Um, you go to that colony now, and there are maybe the same numbers of penguins, but there are different species. It's now the subantarctic chinstraps that are tending to do well in those areas. The Adelies, they haven't, um, they haven't died out, so to speak. They've just moved further south and um, moved, uh, you know, to new rookeries. Uh, we think. But it's, it's, you know, climate change is affecting, we talk, I mean, the globe, the average temperature of the, of the Earth has risen by 1.1 degrees centigrade. And um, if you go to the poles, the poles, you're looking at the Arctic and the Antarctic Peninsula. They are five or six degrees warmer than they were um, when the measurements first started being taken. And this, of course, then, has had a huge
1: impact on the ice cover. And in the winter, in both places, it's not being renewed. There's not being as much snow to replenish the glaciers. Is that the way it is?
4: Well, yeah. you're into this positive feedback um, system, particularly up in, well, yes, with the Arctic. I mean, if you take the sea ice, for example, in the Arctic, the sea ice covering the Arctic, because the spring is, is warmer, the ice melts slightly sooner. So that exposes... The, the Black Sea for a longer period over the summer. So the sea warms up, and the warmer sea takes longer to freeze in the autumn. Because it takes longer to freeze, it freezes later, so the ice in the winter is thinner. So the thinner winter ice melts up earlier in the spring, exposing more black water. So you get in this situation which you call positive feedback. So everything contributes on top of each other to, to make things worse and worse from one year to the next, rather than uh, you know, correcting itself and, and beginning to restabilize the way we want it to be. The snow melt leads to more snow melt um, and as the temperatures come up, sometimes when the temperature rises, you know, you get more snow falling because uh, very cold air doesn't hold much moisture and therefore you don't get much snow. So as you raise the temperature, depending on what your baseline is, as the temperature gets warmer, sometimes the snow increases but um, in many cases, as it gets warmer, it simply gets wetter and rain rather than snow. And of course, rain has a real melting effect on, on glaciers. You know, when you get rain falling on a glacier or a snowfield, that really melts it fast. Rain and wind can get rid of vast areas of snow, of, of snow and ice over a summer if you get a lot of, of snow. If you got a lot of rain and wind.
3: Doug, you mentioned earlier your close encounters with uh, potentially dangerous animals like sharks and polar bears, which I'm sure is is, is very exciting and and worrying in equal measure. Uh, But I'm curious, what what is the most dangerous situation you found yourself in when filming? Have you ever thought to yourself, I might not make it out of this one?
4: Well, there was a walrus grabbed me um, when I was snorting in the water. It thought that I was a seal. Basically, I was treading water, looking around for some birds that I wanted to film, and this walrus came up from underneath and grabbed me round the thighs and would have pulled me under had it not been that. You know, immediately swung the camera around and kind of pushed it against its head. But um, that was definitely. A situation where you know the seal reacted to being hit on the head by letting me go and swimming away a little bit. But if the reaction had been to hold on tighter and take me down, then you know I, I really would have been a goner. So that was that was definitely hairy. And you we know, had bears come close enough that that we need to to give them a squirt of pepper spray. We carry pepper spray um, as a sort of last resort. And luckily, this bear when it did start to come in in earnest, it was downwind of us and and we had the pepper spray handy and and gave it a good squirt and when that pepper spray hits the the nose and the eyes of the bear then it's a really powerful deterrent it will, you know, it headed off very quickly. You know, when you get into these situations it's important that, you know, I don't mind chasing away animals or causing them some discomfort but what I don't want to do is get in a situation where I'm forced to seriously hurt the animal in order to stay safe myself. That would be that would be an absolute disaster for me and it's never happened, um, partly because um, I always surround myself with the best people who know what to do in, in situations like that and it's often them who are who are taking the the chase away action. Me, I'm usually glued to the camera thinking, well this is a nice big close up, I'll just keep on filming <laughs> and I'm relying on other people to make the decision, that's close enough with that bear, we'll chase this one away.
0: Well, Doug, it was lovely talking to you. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your time again. And you can enjoy an evening with Doug on November 9th in Galway, November 10th in Waterford, 16th in Kilkenny, and he'll also be going to Clifton, to Westport, to Oma and to Bray. And you'll find all the details on our website, rte.ie forward slash money. Doug Allen, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And more details about Doug's... Tour can be found on our website, as always, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That's where you go to find a rundown of everything that appears in each programme. Now let's talk about pollinators. Belfast Council plan to get the city buzzing again by restoring 15 hectares for pollinators. What's this all about? Well, to find out more, Anus spoke with Belfast's buzzing conservation officer.
5: I'm Hannah Fullerton, and I work um, with... Belfast Buzzing as a conservation officer.
1: Hello, Hannah. It's great to talk to you about this. This seems to be a wonderful use of lottery funding because you're getting 100000 more than £100,000, to do a project called Belfast's Buzzing and you are setting up bee lines. You have a great, a great line, certainly in sound bites, but it seems like a wonderful project and it's all to do with improving the quality of life for pollinators there.
5: Yes, it's very exciting. It's the first of these projects for bug life to do in Northern Ireland and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. So it involves bee lines and this is bringing insect pathways that will run through our countrysides and towns to restore and create wildflower-rich habitat for pollinators to use as stepping stones to connect their habitats and it's very exciting to be a part of it and to make Belfast more acceptable to pollinators.
1: So what you're doing then is you're in the parks in Belfast and Belfast has its share of parks, places like Mary Peter's Track and Sir Thomas and Lady Dixon Park and other such parks. Not only are they being filled with pollination plants, but the the, the genius of this are the bee lines. You're actually connecting one park with another park by a wildlife corridor. So this, this is the key because... Otherwise, they're just islands and then streets and whatever and traffic, and then another park somewhere else. but to actually have a wildlife corridor that the insects can move along and continue feeding and foraging all of that, that seems to be a touch of genius so how how can you establish bee lines if the whole place is full of traffic and cars and streets?
5: That is the key part of this project that makes it so exciting. Pollinators, which involve a variety of insects, like bees and flies, will look around their surroundings and they won't travel that far if they can't find any of their food or habitats. So they will be able to find uh, wider spaces and spread out to cover more of the countryside if there are little pockets that they can see.
1: It's going to be done on a visual thing in the sense that you're the bee or you're the the butterfly or the fly flying along a feeding area. And then, lo and behold, you can look further along and you see more feeding area and you move along. So you're actually going on a bee line to another area. Then another big place opens up again, another park, and there you are. And then eventually you're at the end of the city where you're into the urban you leave the urban behind and you're into the rural areas where you have hedgerows and fields and everything else. So it's a connection all across the whole city of Belfast.
5: Yes, that's right. It strengthens our rarer species as well, as there are a few that only have small populations and are very at great risk of becoming extinct because if um, that habitat disappears or uh, fertilisers added, That will just wipe them out. Whereas this project will mean that they can have a wider habitat where they can live and feed. So there's less risk of them going extinct and that their numbers can increase.
0: What a wonderfully simple idea. And we hope that you gain something from that. If you're listening, more details, as always, again on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney now finally tonight Bruce Thompson Bruce Thompson who's he well Bruce runs a dairy farm in Ballyfinnan County Leash he's an 8th generation farmer and has a commercial dairy herd of 320 cows in 2018 he started researching how dung beetles are beneficial to agriculture through reducing parasite burdens and nutrient recycling in 2020 our own Terry
6: Flanagan dropped down to Leash to find out more these beetles are also a taxi for phoretic mites, right? And that's why they're important to you, isn't that's, it? That's that's one of the key contributions. Phoretic mites actually eat parasite eggs. Now these parasite eggs, these would be from the worms. Yeah, these would that be the infect cattle. Yes, the gastrointestinal worms. So we would traditionally use a wormer to get right. rid of these parasites. But These warmers they can have an effect on the environment. So what you're trying to do, you're trying to use a a kind of biological control. Correct, yeah. And that biological control are these mites. These mites and the beetles. And the beetles. Yes. But we stick with the mites for a moment. So the mites are carried by the beetles. The mites don't affect the beetles. No. It's a bit like the small bird in in the crocodile's mouth. So the the crocodile keeps his mouth open and lets the bird clean his teeth. Yeah, and Um, the bird gets a free feed. bird gets a free feed. Symbiotic relationship. Correct. So this is what you have here. Yes, exactly.
0: So, how is Bruce getting on now in 2022, four years after he started his research? Let's ask him, Bruce. How are you doing today? You're obsessed with dung beetles. Where did it all begin? <laughs>
6: <laughs> it happened, I suppose. Um, myself and my wife were on a safari in South Africa back, I think, it's about 15 years ago now, and uh, we saw this big roller. Rolling dung balls, I should say. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't they be great to have it in in our own little country? That was it. I hope you didn't bring any back with you. No, I think that would be, aside from being a bit weird, it's probably highly illegal as well. (laughs) But we do have them here. We do indeed. Yeah, we do indeed. Not that type, but we do have beetles here, dung beetles, yeah.
0: So tell us about the ones we have here.
6: We have uh, two types of dung beetles here. We have tunnellers and we have dwellers. So the dwellers they live in the dung pats, they lay their eggs in the dung paths and uh, they mate in the dung paths. The tunnellers then they burrow down into the ground and they bring the, the dung pat down into the soil and lay their eggs in little constructed brood balls made out of dungpats, out of the actual feces, and um, they hatch then and they work their way back up to the soil to complete their life cycle.
1: The the cattle feeding on the grass are eating parasites. This is not good for the cattle. So there are all of these wormers or these poisons, these poisons for these parasites that are fed to cattle and they go through the digestive system, clearing out the cattle from the parasites. But of course, these poisons then, they actually go straight down into the dung and then they affect the beetles eating the dung. So by starting this terrible cycle, poisoning the, the, the dung pats, so that you won't have any parasites in your cattle, you're actually making the numbers of dung beetles in the dung pats less. So it's a vicious cycle in actual fact. And you're a dairy farmer. I mean, you must have encountered all of this. So, you know, how do you get, breaking this cycle, having your dung beetles there and not poisoning the dung pads for them.
6: Yeah, it's it's not very easy uh, to overcome the situation, I suppose, because you have an animal that, that um, <clears throat> is diseased with parasites. It needs to be wormed. But the, the problem is, that, as you pointed out, these wormers they don't specifically aim at worms only that are in the animal's stomach. They return back out in, onto pasture um, unmetabolized, where the dung, it affects the dung beetle populations you are effectively um, maybe a small extent shooting yourself in the foot. I suppose the, the best way of, of looking at it is um, you, you, you need to use these wormers like antibiotics, so they're used um, only when you need them they are a, a crucial part of agriculture but in overusing using them you're going to um, line yourself up for trouble so what we need to do is select the animals that actually need to be wormed and only worm those ones at the right time and use the specific right product. And we need to consider what effects these products are going to, to do on, on, the, um, on ecology because the dung beetles are a, um, they're also a food source for, for other creatures. Um, they're at the bottom of the, the food chain. So you get little small songbirds, bats, and even some of the larger birds, foxes, and badgers actually feast on these beetles. So a good, healthy dung pat with a healthy, uh, thriving community of dung beetles is, is a great food source for other creatures. So I suppose, look, you really need to take into everything into account when you pick up the bottle um, to, to worm animals. Do they actually need to be wormed? And which ones need to be wormed? And which product do I need to use? And it's it's a whole world of science as to how to figure all this out. It's it's very complex. It um, takes a lot of measurement and a lot of uh, expertise um, that we are only learning about in, in recent years.
1: But do the dung beetles actually get rid of the parasites off the grass? I mean, how, what would the dung beetles have to do with parasites of worms?
6: Look, that, that's a good question. And yes, they do. They, they don't completely get rid of them. Um, but everything helps. Ultimately, the animal's own immune system should be able to um, fend off the majority of these parasites, if they don't get overburdened with them. The dung beetles will keep them down, help help keep them down to an acceptable level that the animal's own immune system is able to notice that these parasites are there, and that they're, they're able to fend them off. They will help in, in in that area. And look, in doing so, then you're going to use less wormers. And then you, you, you're, of course, heading in the right direction then on, on an upward spiral. Less wormers you use, the more dung beetles you will have. And the important thing then is that these products are then that we are using on the farms are, are pr- protected because the animal parasites that we are talking about are becoming resistant to these products. So in time, these products will, will become ineffective. So overuse of them um, is is going to cause us a lot of trouble down the line.
1: Now, your scholarship enabled you to travel to South Australia and to Tasmania to do some studies. Now, these these continents, uh, South Australia and Tasmania, their natural herbivores were actually kangaroos and wallabies a whole different collection of dung from them so they brought over sheep they brought over cattle from this side of the world so how did their dung pats manage to get broken down or did they or was there a huge problem that the fields got more and more covered with dung pats and less and less grass could grow how did they manage there and what did you see when you went over to those places
6: European settlers arrived into Australia in the late 18th century, and they brought their cattle and sheep with them, which deposited dung paths um, across the landscape. The issue was the dung beetles that were there, as, as you say, the native ones, they, they were evolved uh, over a long period of time with marsupial dung, so your kangaroos and your wallabies, and they... They took one bite out of these these dung pats and and uh, they thought it didn't taste very nice, so they left them. It wasn't a big problem until after the the Second World War when they started intensifying agriculture in in uh, Australia, and then there was a lot of dung pats being left deposited out onto the landscape. Um, it was covering ground and not allowing grass growth. Um, but the biggest issue was at that point that. Um, it was actually an urban problem. The dungpats were provided an excellent home for bushfly. So if you if you think back, um, the our stereotypical uh, image of a, an Australian with his hat and the corks hanging from it to keep the bushflies away from his face that was that was a big problem back in back in the 60s, 50s and 60s. I talked to one farmer, an, an older gent. He he can remember taking a sandwich out of his lunchbox. And he said you couldn't get it from the lunchbox into your mouth without the, the sandwich being covered in flies. So al fresco eating, dining outside, was it was a no-go. So there was a, a hu- Hungarian doctor working out in Australia at the time that came up with this ingenious idea of importing beetles from South Africa. And they brought in these, these dung beetles and mass reared them and released them out onto the landscape to bury the dung pats. And that it got rid of 99% of the bushflies um, where they were released. So they've been continuing on this process ever since since the 1960s of catching beetles, non-native beetles, and importing them into Australia to bury the non-native dungpats, I suppose is the best way of, of, of putting it. Um, some of these beetles are, are now coming from Europe. I know there's there's some being caught in, in France, to um Department of Agriculture from Australia have a, a laboratory in France where they are collecting these beetles and uh, importing them. Um, they've, they've now found different attributes that they're actually, like I was saying there earlier, they, they um, reduce the parasite burdens on pasture, they actually help the soil health. So the soil in, in Australia has, has a very low carbon and organic matter percentage. And burying these dung pads into the soil really helps increase this. They're also finding that they're they've been used for in areas water catchment areas where they were finding that they we're having a lot of algal bloom problems in the waterways. So what was happening was animals were depositing dung pats on pasture, and when it rained heavy, and when it does rain heavy in Australia, it rains heavy the water off this pasture was going into the waterways and polluting it. So they, they found the, the dung beetles, not, not only were they removing the dung pats from the soil, but they were also leaving little tunnels and aerating the soil. So when it did rain, the water went down into, into the soil rather than running over the top of it and straight into the waterways. So it gave the grass and other herbage the chance to, to re, um, recycle these nutrients rather than them getting into the waterways. So that that was the the long and short of of what I saw in Australia.
1: Would such a scheme be necessary in Ireland? Have we enough dung beetles here or do we need to breed dung beetles and augment what we have? Or is it all a matter of reducing the the wormers, reducing the poisons in the feces in the first instance?
6: So being a dung beetle enthusiast, I would say we we could never possibly have enough beetles in dung beetles in Ireland. But The real answer is we we don't really know because we don't have any baseline figures on how many dung beetles we have had in Ireland in in recent history. Um, So we don't know what effect our modern practices actually have on the dung beetle populations. The only thing we can say is that we can assume that they are diminishing because uh, it is what is happening over in, in the UK and our our agriculture practices are very similar to that, so it, it it's a fairly safe assumption to say that our dung beetles are declining in population. The other point, I suppose, is that should should we be breeding dung beetles? Um. Well, I would I would probably say it there would be definitely benefits in it, and um, particularly with some species the tunnelers I was talking about earlier. They seem to have, uh, anecdotally. Diminished an awful lot in numbers over the last couple of decades, um, so I would definitely think there would be there would be benefits in it. However, like you say, um, there's absolutely no point in doing that if the reasons that these beetles have diminished in numbers aren't addressed um, in the first place. We're we're, uh, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're, we're on a place to nowhere if we don't if we don't look at these uh, these products that we're using. Bruce, I know that you've finished
0: your research and you've handed in your report and clearly you still have a love and an affection for dung beetles. But what were your final conclusions? What are you saying to our listeners?
6: So my main conclusions were that the dung beetles uh, will help reduce parasite burdens and pasture. The dung beetles are an excellent food source for small birds, bats and badgers and foxes, along with other creatures. The wormers that we are using in the animals and and, uh, fly control products have a negative effect on dung beetles populations. So we are are affecting the, the populations of beetles on pasture. Bruce, fascinating
0: to speak with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's pretty much all we have time for tonight. Don't forget, you can visit our website anytime you like rte.ie forward slash Mooney. My thanks to Eynan Ilauna, Richard Collins, and Niall Hatch, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlith Holland, and our researcher, John Bella Riley. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.